Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 9, 1 through 15. <clears throat> After these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our inequities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our inequities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our inequities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. It's my joy to preach the Word of God for you this morning or to you this morning. Um, man, what a amazing uh, worship set. So band and singers, thank you for that. That was outstanding. I got to experience it twice today. Uh, if I have any preaching voice left, it's going to be a miracle because I was getting into it. Praise the Lord. Um, I'm going to just kind of move right in this morning. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's one of my favorite books of his. It's a fascinating book written from the perspective of a high-ranking demon to a lower-ranking demon named Wormwood. And it was this de demon called Screwtape teaching um, Wormwood the best ways to tempt Christians to get them to sin and reject the, their one and only Savior. It's a very creative, fascinating book. Uh, and in a section of the book where Screwtape is describing how to best use the middle age years of a person's life, he says this striking statement. Quote, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding his place in its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circles of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, 
build up in him a sense of really being at home on earth, which is just what we want. Here's what Lewis is getting at. As human beings, we hate suffering. We hate difficult seasons in life. We hate pain and loss and grief. But more often than not, it's actually the prosperous and good seasons of life that are the most dangerous to our souls. As Lewis said so well there, it is in the prosperous times where we think we're finding our place in the world when in reality, the world, the flesh, and the devil are actually making their way into us. The Apostle John wrote something similar in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, when he says this, quote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, pause here for a second. Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So there's a sense where we are called to love the world. We want the world to serve and know Jesus Christ. But we're not meant to love the world or the things in the world in an idolatrous sense, meaning we put them before Jesus. Back to the text. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world The desires of the flesh means the cravings that I want. The desires of the eyes, all of the things, all the shiny, beautiful things that that I see that I think I have to have. And the pride of life, all of my accomplishments, all of me living my life is meant to give me a resume that I'm really impressed with. Is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, today we are going to see how a real man of God, a real spiritual leader, responds to his people's high-handed sin. Now, I was personally just wrecked by this text this week. Normally, I begin writing on Monday. I've I've done some prep work and some study, but then Monday, I do a lot of study, and and I begin writing the sermon on Monday. This week, I couldn't even write because I felt just so wrecked by this sermon. I sent it out to the elders. I told the elders to read through it, to pray through it, that God was doing something in my heart, and I pray that if you listen and open your ears and open your heart, that God wants to do something in your heart today. As well. So I'm going to ask you something today. I'm going to ask you, this is a small building, and, and so I'm going to ask you, unless it's an emergency, not to get up and not to move around. When you do get up and you move around, it, I, you don't see it from my perspective. When you get up, I watch 10 people watch you walk out and watch you walk back in. And I watch you, and, I, and it, it's, it's distracting, okay? So I'm just going to let you know. I'm not trying to shame you or anything like that, but unless it's an emergency or, you know, they put your number up on the screen, it's totally, it's totally fine. Um, I ask you today, it's a pretty serious text that we're in, and so I just ask that you would give honor to the reading and the preaching of the Word of God this morning um, by focusing in. So let me pray for us, and we'll get after it. Father God, we thank you. Man, we thank you for that worship time. We thank you for our worship leaders that led us so well this morning. We thank you for Jesus who gave gave everything for us, and we thank you for your Word. We need you to reveal yourself to us. We need you to speak to us, and you speak to us primarily through your word. Father, I pray that your word would produce in us what we see here in Ezra. You would produce in us a hatred for the things that you hate and a love for the things that you love, that our desires and affections would 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 be just like yours, and our thoughts would be after yours. I pray that you would use me today, Lord that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. It would be all of you and none of me that as a sinful man, I can easily make mistakes and say the wrong thing. And so I ask that you would hide me behind your word and I ask that you would give your people ears to hear and discernment to know the difference between your words that you're speaking through me and my own opinions. Father, would your words produce 30, 60, even 100 fold harvest in the lives of your people for your glory, for our good, and for the joy of our city, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us, let me catch us up really quick in our study in the book of Ezra. Remember, Ezra is a scribe and a scholar. He's a man of God that knows his Bible and is competent in his scriptures. 
His skill with the words of God so impressed the king that the king made Ezra something of a secretary of state and sent him back to Israel to improve the right worship of God. To, remember, he had three things he had to do. Improve the right worship of God, teach the law of God, and to appoint civil magistrates and judges. So Ezra went away from Assyria back to Israel to reform the whole city according to the word of God, right? Well, last week we saw Ezra refuse to compromise the message of the gospel that he had spoken directly to the king. He told the king that God protects those who bless and blesses those who seek him. So he refused to ask the king for special protection on the dangerous 900-mile journey through the desert back to Jerusalem, even though he was at great risk of robbery and ambush. Remember, they were loaded down with all kinds of gold and silver and bronze for the temple, and they were traveling with their children. So they were a vulnerable target, loaded down with riches, but, and instead of asking the king for help, for chariots and soldiers, Ezra sought God for help. Ezra proclaimed a fast and prayed to God for protection. God answered his prayers and delivered them from the hands of his enemies and from ambushes on the way. Now here's the scene. God has already sent multiple groups of people back to Israel or back to Jerusalem. They've finished the construction of the temple. Took them 20 years, but they finished it. They've got priests back in town, Levites back in town performing sacrifices. The right worship of God has been restored. The king now has just sent the second shipment of riches to beautify the temple. Things are going really well for God's people. They've experienced a lot of God's blessings and favors. They felt his wind behind their back, right? The wind in, in, in their sails, his hand of blessing upon they're back. They're prospering in Jerusalem. And now God has brought Ezra, the man of God, to the city to teach them the laws of God. In walks Ezra. No doubt, full of hope. Like a young pastor fresh out of seminary with his leather-bound Bible in his hand with his name on it. Ready to preach the gospel, to preach the law, and to change a city for Jesus. And one of the first things that Ezra meets in the city is bad news. Really bad news. Open up your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. After these things had been done, there it is, I just told you all those things, the officials approached me and said, here comes the bad news. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Okay, now I've got some work to do here. Our 21st century ears might hang up on a few words in that text. The ESV translates the Hebrew word Zerah, and Zerah means seed or child or offspring or descendants. And that word Zerah, so offspring, seeds, descendants, they translate race. Now we, when we hear the word race, we've got all kind of modern connotations that the Bible does not mean. And so if we read race, and it seems like God's saying, you're a holy race, and you better avoid all those other races, and now you're getting in trouble for interracial marriage. That sounds very racist. But if you study our text closely, you'll see that's not the case. God is not racist. God doesn't even, the modern concept of race is actually, you can't even find it in scriptures. 
God's word does not promote racism in any way. So just what is going on here? Well, remember this. After God delivered his people out of Egyptian slavery, he brought them to the edge of the land that he was going to give them, the land called the promise land. And this is what he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If I can get there in my Bible really quick. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, look at here, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. And show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Look, here's the reasoning. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars. See that? Dash in pieces their pillars. That's, that's their worship structures, basically. And chop down their asherah. That's a pole to asherah. I'll explain it later. And burn their carved images with fire. So you need to destroy idolatry from the land. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. So what's, just, what's going on here is every nation, see, God is primarily concerned in these texts. It's not with their race. It's with their worship. Okay, do you see that? It's not the color of somebody's skin or what nationality they come from or who their people were. It's what God do they worship. He says, those nations, he names them, serve different gods. And if you marry them and then give your kids to them in marriage, they will corrupt your hearts away from the true God. And they would, quote, turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against them and he would destroy you quickly. Here's the issue that we often have a hard time seeing and understanding in our day and age. Every Nation's religion is upstream from their culture. Any society's culture is simply an outworking of its religion. Different gods produce different religions, which beget different cultures. The Canaanites, one of the false gods here, one of the people, the Canaanites, we see on that text, worship two gods. They worship many gods, but they worshiped Asherah, we saw the Asherah poles, Asherah and Molech, okay? Asherah was the goddess of fertility. So guess what? It was a big pole in the shape of you know what? And they worshiped God sexually. They had Asherah, Canaanite prostitutes in the temple of Asherah. And they gave their bodies to worship God, their gods that way. The god of Molech, child sacrifice was a normal religious practice of the Canaanites offering their children to the god Molech. So when God commands Israel not to marry or even get too close in relationship with the Canaanites, he's not rejecting them because of their race. He's rejecting them because of their idolatry. They worship demons. And that false worship to a false god will have a corrupting influence in the hearts of God's people, their children, and downstream will have negative effects in the culture. So God isn't being racist here. And saying, you cannot marry anyone outside your race. He's saying, you cannot marry anyone outside your religion. Now, the Apostle Paul says the very same thing to the Corinthians in the New Testament. Quote, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. When you wanted to plow a field, you put two oxen together. And if they were not equal, if one was small, one was big, or if they were different animals, one would literally drag the other one to death. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Every person has a different standard of holiness. Christian's standard of holiness, righteousness, is the word of God. You're not meant to partner or marry someone with any different standard. He goes on. What fellowship does light have with darkness? God's word is light. Every other so-called revelation or idea of morality is darkness. What accord has Christ with Baal? Or what portion does a believer, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The answer to that question is none. We don't. Many of us say, I think it's, we, we share a lot in common with our neighbors, with our unbelievers' friends. What's the, what's the big deal? He goes on, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. When a Christian is dating a non-Christian and says something like, what does it matter if she's a Christian or not? She's nice. She's, she's a good person. That's exactly the kind of thing the people in Ezra day were saying. What in the world is, why is God being so strict here? What a stupid rule. Look at that Canaanite girl. She's hot. What's wrong with her? I like her. She's cute. She's nice. She doesn't, she's not bothered by my worship. I worship Yahweh. She goes and worship her. What's the big deal? See, this is one of the dangers of the world. That Canaanite girl doesn't worship the God of the Bible. She doesn't have the Ten Commandments. She doesn't have that standard of righteousness. She might even be willing to sleep with you before marriage. You might fall in love with her. She might be really nice. But what you don't know is that her God has now become your God. You might say you're a Christian, but you're living out her God's vision of morality and ethics and worship. You're literally using your body in your sexual union with her. You're using your body to worship her false Canaanite God, the God of fertility. You might say you're a Christian, but you're worshiping like a pagan. Now I see this in the life, I've seen this, I've been a, I was a youth pastor for seven years before I've been a pastor here for 11, and I've seen it in the lives of so many young people, male and female. They get so lonely, they get so desperate, they see what's going on in the world, and they just want to grab the first cute person that comes, that swipes right. I just changed that, see, 10 years, it's changed. Right? It used to be text you, talk to you, coffee shop. No, now it's all internet, right? Drop you in your DMs, Okay. First person that comes, whoom, let's go. Oh, we'll work that stuff out later. We'll work that stuff out later. No, you won't. And what happens most of the time is one of them, the Christian one, wants to serve Jesus somewhere down the road, maybe post children or something, and then one person, specifically it's the, if, if it's the female who gets, who gets converted or was a Christian, she wants the man to start coming to church and, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. I've seen so many people get divorced because of this. Now, surprisingly, if it's the man who's a, who's a Christian, it's something like 75% of the time, if the man is a Christian, the woman will be converted as well. But many times, when these young people, they come, they're, maybe they're going to church, they find this person, most of the time, when they start dating somebody outside of their faith, they walk away from the church. They start worshiping other gods. They think they're still a Christian because the words of Jesus maybe are on their lips, so they call themselves a Christian but they're worshiping a different God. Now, there's one more really important reason here that we know that God is not preventing interracial marriage here. What he is saying is he's saying marrying pagans is against the law, not marrying outside of your people. We know this because of the full testimony of the rest of the scriptures in the Old and New Testament. When a person was willing to convert and leave their gods and leave their people and worship the one and only true God, God's people could marry outside of their race or outside of their people or nationality. Let me give you a few examples. Moses married a Cushite. That's an Ethiopian, modern-day Ethiopian. Do you remember Ruth from the book of Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite 
one of the groups of people that are expressly forbidden for God's people to marry here. But Boaz, an Israelite, married her. Why was it not against God's law for him to marry her? Remember what Ruth said to Naomi. Quote, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. For your people shall be my people and your God, my God. See, Ruth converted. Ruth left the Moabite gods and left the Moabite people and left the Moabite religion and in our vernacular became a Christian. Ruth was converted. We also need to remember Boaz's mother, Boaz who married Ruth, Boaz's mother was Rahab. You know Rahab. Oh, do you not know Rahab? Do you not, you don't read this Bible story at home to your children at night? Hmm. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. She was one of the prostitutes that worshiped in the Asherah temple, giving herself sexually to worship that false god of fertility. But when Joshua and the spies went to inspect the city, she worked out her faith and, and acted out in her faith, and she hid them in her house and then lied to the Canaanite army who was searching for them, okay? And if you want to know, is it ever ethical to lie, and what's the morality of lying? We just did a podcast on this topic this week, and it's coming out probably next week. It's a pretty interesting one. Because in this situation, Rahab became a Christian. She left her religion, and therefore, now it became legal for Salmon, or Salmon, I don't know how to say his name. <laughs> Named after a fish now, man, so whatever. Salmon, Salmon, whatever you are. It was now legal for him to marry her. And this is what's interesting. You go to the New Testament, and in Matthew chapter 1, we learn that Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God, was a direct descendant of Rahab, Boaz, and Ruth. That's redeemed Canaanite blood running through Jesus' veins. See, this is not an issue over nationality or race. Rather, it's a worship issue. God's people are strictly forbidden from marrying and even from being in too close of a relationship with unbelievers because we are prone to wander. Our hearts are like half-subdued cities and they erupt in violence inside of us. They erupt mutinously inside of us and, and want to drag us away. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Proverbs says, bad company corrupts good morals. We should be kind and hospitable to those who do not worship our God, but we should be very careful that we do not allow them to have in, enough influence in our life to draw our hearts away from the living God. Or to allow their, our kids' coaches to draw their hearts away from the worship of the living God. Hey, let's go golfing on Saturday. Hey, let's have practice on Saturday. Hey, we're gonna have tournaments on Saturday. The word of God says the Sabbath is holy unto the Lord. So back to our text here. Ezra lands in Jerusalem and finds the people intermarrying with pagans. The sin was so widespread that the civil magistrates, the religious leaders, the priests and the Levites had intermarried and given their kids in marriage to the pagans. And this is the part that should be the most shocking to us. Apparently, nearly everyone was okay with this. The people of God were prospering. They were happy. They were joyful. They thought they were doing pretty good. Their bank accounts looked okay. Their temple looked okay. They had priests and they had sacrifices and they had all the stuff on the outside and they figured, oh, we're doing pretty good. They were making their way in the city and prospering, not realizing that the culture was actually evangelizing them. 
The surrounding culture had made its way into their hearts and then into their homes. And now they look just as pagan as everybody else. This is exactly how worldliness works. Once you've been evangelized by your culture, you might not even realize that you've walked away from God and you're actually practicing a different religion. You might not even be bothered by the fact that the culture's values have become your own. Guess what? When this happens, your sins against God might not even bother you anymore. The sins of your culture might not even bother you anymore. You might not get much of a reaction out of you anymore. Everybody's doing it. God must be okay with it. God must be patient with it. God's not really worried about it. And Ezra names this faithlessness. You know how much the world has made its way into your soul by how much of this offends you. How much of this you're ashamed of. I would never share that verse with my friend. I would never share that verse with that person. I would never just read the Bible in front of people. And many, many pastors are just as guilty today as the priests and the Levites were in Ezra's day. They're, they have no courage. They're full of fear. They're more worried about offending people and they want to gather a crowd than they are about preaching the word of God and shame on them. In Ezra day, it looked like marrying pagans. Looks like that today. Many Christian kids are not discipled by their parents choose to date somebody who's not a Christian. But it also looks like spending inordinate amounts of money on yourself and barely giving anything to God's mission. The greed of the world has made its way into the church. The envy of the world has made its way into the church. Avarice has made its way into the church. Today, it looks like being obsessed with your image and reputation to the point where you never share your faith with anyone. You're afraid, you're ashamed of your faith. And Jesus said, if you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you. Pride, narcissism, wanting to be thought well of by our neighbors all the time. It looks like twisting or blatantly ignoring the words of God to go with the flow of the culture. We have women in the pulpit. We have gay people in the pulpit. We have preachers say, speaking all kind of lies. This week I watched one of these, tick, this TikTok thing got sent to me, this TikTok supposed pastor who took the, the words of Jesus and the story of Lazarus when he said, Lazarus, come out, and he raised him from the dead. To, he used that as a metaphor that he was telling Lazarus to come out of the closet and kids on TikTok, oh, that sounds very good. Now you might say, what's the big deal, pastor? Aren't we all sinners? Yes, we all, we all, we all are sinners. We all stand guilty before the righteous throne of God. And the only way any of us can be forgiven of all of our trespasses is if we repent of our sin and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. But here's the thing. Many pastors have lied to you. They've told you that all sins are the same. All sins are not the same. All sins are sin, but all sins are not the same. Listen how the book of Numbers describes what the Bible calls high-handed sin. Numbers 15, 27 through 31. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake. Okay, there's one sin. Sin is unintentional. Sin is making a mistake, missing the mark. When he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. For him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. See, 
The community of Israel was a mixed multitude of people. Anybody could come in as long as they embraced the faith of Israel. But verse 30, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. To sin high-handedly or to sin with a high hand is to willfully disobey God's commandments and then in a sense, lift up your fist to God and say, I dare you to do anything about it. I can hear what you're thinking. Good thing we're not under the Old Testament anymore. I'm going to wiggle out from under that one. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Quote, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, after receiving the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Sinning deliberately, purposefully, willfully, with a high hand. I know what the word of God says, but I'm going to do what I say. What remains for them? A fearful expectation of judgment. Jesus took my judgment. Yes, but if you've accepted him by faith and now you're sinning with a high hand, don't assume he took your judgment. You've got judgment coming for your high-handed sin. And look at this. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidences of two or three witnesses. So if you disobeyed the law of God, you said, I know what God said, but I'm going to sin in a hind-headed way, then you were, you were killed for it. Look what he says, New Testament. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All sins are not the same. High-handed Willful rebellion against God from these texts reviles the Lord, despises his word, breaks his commandments, tramples on the blood of our Savior, and outrages the spirit of grace. The only appropriate response to high-handed sin, our own and our culture's, is grief. And brokenness. Ezra here shows us what a well differentiated leader looks like, what a man of God looks like. A leader who is uncorrupted by worldliness, who fears nothing but God, and hates nothing but sin. Ezra's imagination is so full of the glory of God and his mind so shaped and saturated by the scriptures that he sees this situation from God's point of view and he has, listen to this, an entirely appropriate response to the people's sin. He actually thinks like God thinks here and he feels like God feels here. And it's not apathy. He doesn't shrug his shoulders and go, oh, boys will be boys. Well, you know, it's a pagan culture, so we'd be paganing. <laughs> Look at verse 3. Ezra chapter 9, verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. 
We've been talking a lot in our leadership institute about reacting versus responding. This is not a reaction. This is a biblical, God-honoring, spirit-led response. We know this because he sits down until the evening sacrifice. For multiple hours, he fasts and he sits down and he's sitting in it and he's sitting, sitting there appalling before he responds. More than likely, so overwhelmed with frustration and sadness over his people's sin that he's trying to get his mind and his heart right. He's meditating on what he's going to do. What does the Lord want me to do? And what's interesting, I want you to see this. Ezra was a priest. A priest is a person who stands between a holy God and a sinful people as a mediator. A priest is given the keys of the kingdom, we could say. Forgiveness, confession, sacrifice. Okay? So what does the priest do? The priest pulls his beard out, pulls his hair out, sits down, takes the grief of the people and the sin of the people on himself. That's what Ezra does. Now, what's really fascinating, and we're going to study it later this year, the book of Nehemiah, this cycle happens again. And Nehemiah is a governor. Nehemiah is a civil magistrate. He wasn't given the keys of the kingdom. He's given the sword to minister justice. So you know what, you know what Nehemiah does when the people intermarry? He rips their beard out, curses them, and beats them up. And it was completely just and it was completely biblical for them to do that. He's a governor. He sees the sin of this people is going to have national consequences. It's going to ruin society. What are you doing? You're abandoning God again? Do you want him to judge us all? So fascinating. Ezra pulls his own hair out as a priest. But as a governing authority, he literally pulls their hair out and curses them. Verse four, thankfully, Ezra was not all alone. And I pray this morning that I'm not all alone either. Verse four, then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, trembled. That's the remnant. That's God's people. That's the people who really have the spirit of God. I don't care how many times you pray to prayer. I don't care how many times you've been to camp. I don't care how many times you've taken the Lord's Supper. A Christian trembles at the word of God. All who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, Ezra chooses to lay prostrate before the Lord and pray as a priest, standing between holy God and a sinful, rebellious people. Look what he says, verse six. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the land. He's saying, we were carried off into Babylon, into Assyria, because of this very sin, and we are doing it again. Verse 8, but now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. He's like, for this brief moment in time, we felt the favor of God and we've got all this stuff going for us and there's pros prosperity going our way and we're being restored. Yet our God has, or no, I'm sorry. A little revive, for we are slaves. Even in this prosperity, we are slaves to our sin. We are like a dog that returns to its vomit. We just keep going back to our old ways. Look at this, though. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. 
but he has extended to us his steadfast love. Now listen, that word is hesed in the Hebrew, and I like to describe it as God's one-way covenantal love. So people down here are high-handedly sinning, and he's pursuing them with grace and mercy and kindness, reminding them what, they, what he's done for them, and he's never going to leave them or never forsaken them. That's what that steadfast love means. Before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and, get, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure. Look, with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations, that they have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Their idol worship was all through the land. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity. Do you realize that sounds exactly opposite of what he said in Jeremiah 29 when he was sending him into Babylon to seek the good and the welfare of the city? That's the one that all the preachers that don't want to offend people, they all talk about Jeremiah 29. They never talk about this one. Don't mix with them. Don't, don't give yourself to them. Don't seek their prosperity and welfare. That you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. You get so close to the world that you're losing your children. Ezra here is throwing himself He's standing between God and people as the priest. He's taking their sins upon him. You hear me? There's our sins, our sins, our sins. Verse 14. No, verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, you would be just to wipe us out. We deserve annihilation. We've rebelled against the God of the universe. We're breathing your air in rebellion, high-handedly sinning against you. You have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so there should be no remnant nor any to escape? Look at this. Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Ezra here is confessing the sins of his people and throwing himself on the mercy of God. He is saying you would be totally just to destroy us. You would be right and holy and good to judge us. You should be angry with us. We are guilty of high-handed sin and we deserve for you to do to us what you did to our fathers who rejected you previously. Listen, this is what real repentance looks like. Real repentance isn't coming to the Lord knowing you're going to do it again. Real repentance isn't, oh yeah, Jesus, I'm sorry for all my sins. This is what real repentance looks like. You begin to hate what God hates. Ezra is taking responsibility here for his sins and the nation's sins. He's not guilty of all these things. He's not at fault, but he's responsible. Now listen. God has made us, every Christian in this room, God, Jesus says, or scripture says, he made us a kingdom of priests. Every one of you are a missionary. Every one of you are sent out from this building every single week to stand between a holy God and an unrighteous people. Whether that be your neighbors, whether that be your family, whether that be your coworkers, you're called to be a priest like Ezra. Do you grieve over your sins like Ezra grieves right here. Do you grieve over your neighbor's sin like Ezra does here? 
Can I stand in the shoes of Ezra this morning and say about us and our our people, this country, God, you would be just to judge us. We claim to be one nation under God, but now we have willfully, purposefully, high-handedly rejected you. Our money says in God we trust, but we have flipped that on its head, and it's in money we trust. Our declaration of independence says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and yet we have denied these unalienable rights to over 63 million children who have been killed in their mother's womb since Roe versus Wade decision. We have said that we have no creator. We've rejected you as creator. We want to self-create. We have cursed you and tried to take your place. We have rejected your truth. We have rejected the givenness of our bodies that are good gifts from a gracious creator designed by him, male and female, that point towards our purpose to glorify God with our bodies by loving the opposite sex and pursuing procreation for his own glory. Rather, we say we are our own creation and we can do what we want with our bodies. We can mutilate them any way we want to. We can cut off our breasts and cut off our genitalia and we call it good. And we demand that everyone else allows us to indoctrinate our children to do the same thing. We stand guilty as a nation under our God. And many of us are so afraid at offending our neighbor with any words from the scripture, we would rather be nice and send them to hell. Shame on us. But many of us also We're not guilty of those things. Like Ezra wasn't guilty of many of those high-handed things that he just said, but we sin against God in our own high-handed ways. We know what the scripture teaches. And we say, maybe later. Behold, Lord, our God. We stand before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you Because of this, God, our only hope is that you're gracious. Romans chapter five says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for high-handed sinners like us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're sinning with a high hand and saying, I dare you to do something to me, Christ died for us. Let's go back to Ezra. Ezra pulled out his beard, said appalled. Nehemiah pulled out other people's beard. Jesus had his beard pulled out. He was spit on. He was crucified. He took our place. He is the perfect high priest that stood in like Ezra and took your place. But he's also the king. And when he comes again, he's not taking any wounds to the face. When he comes again, he's crushing all of his enemies under his feet. So the time of repentance is now. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, we get made right with God through his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that we deserved, we're getting saved from that at the ultimate judgment for if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, 
Now that we've reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. This is the only way man can be saved. Have you believed? Now listen. When God saves a person, he changes them. When God saves a person, he changes them. Doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. But if, you're, if you are committed willfully, if you're coming to the Lord's Supper week in and week out, knowing you're sinning tomorrow willfully, you should have no confidence that you're saved. I heard it said one time, when God saves a person, he, to a person consistently going back to their sin, when God saves a person, he does a better job than that. He puts his spirit in you, and that spirit wants to obey the commandments, wants to obey him in all things. Does not mean we're perfect. We will still sin. But there's a difference between high-handed, willful rebellion than the sins of our flesh. So if you are in here, Jesus Christ offers you real forgiveness. Real life change. And, I, and one of the things it's going to cause you to do is hate worldliness. It's going to stink in your nose and you will begin to stink to the world. Yeah. Scripture says you, we become a stench of death to those who are perishing. A stench of life to those who are being saved. Now listen, that's the gospel. You believe it and you're changed by it, and you're saved by it. It's the only way, it's sheer grace of God, right? You're gonna fail, you're gonna make mistakes, and God's grace and Jesus' blood covers them. But every week we end this portion by taking the Lord's Supper together. And one of the things that, the, that Jesus tells us to do and the apostle tells us to do in Corinthians is we are to examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table so we don't eat it in an unworthy manner. And what that means is if you are practicing unrepentant, high-handed sin, you repent of that sin, you confess it to the Lord your God, and if it's against another brother or sister in this room, you go to them and ask for forgiveness before you come and eat this. So if you've gossiped about someone in this room, if you lied about someone in this room, if you sinned against someone in this room, you go and ask for forgiveness to that person before you come and take it. And he says, if you don't, you eat it unworthily. This is also, we need to, parents, we need to talk to our children about this. And they, do you have ought against your brother? Are you fighting with your sister? Have you guys made up? Have you repented? Before you come, in the words of Paul, eat damnation unto your soul. You're bringing a curse upon yourself because you're high-handedly sinning and you're taking the Lord's Supper like you're, like you're all good. Now, so this, I'm, I'm using high-handed sin purposefully here. I have seen the supper get turned into some kind of introspective, navel-gazing, working up some kind of, what sin did I possibly do? Like, like a metal detector. I'm running it over my soul to see if I got anything down there, right? Oh, oh I did kick the cat yesterday. I forgot, <laughs> right? And the Lord says, no, you're good with that. <laughs> no, just joking, just joking. High-handed sin is different, right? I'm not asking you to go into your soul and knock out all the corners. Are you sinning against God? Have you made a decision like, this is my money. I don't care what God has done for me. I'm using it how I want to use it. If you said, this is my body. I don't care what God says in his word. I'm going to use it how I want to use it. What is it? Are you sinning in a high-handed way? If you are Christian, don't come to this table. Stay in your seat and take the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't take the elements. Or confess your sin, repent to God, ask him to cause you to hate what he hates and love what he loves. And come to the table and receive fellowship with him in the body of Christ. Let me pray for us. Most merciful Jesus, how you loved high-handed sinners like us. And love, not just an affection, not just in feeling, but in action. You pursued us. You came after us. You lived the life that we failed to live and died the death that we deserve at our own hands. We did it to you. 
We deserve your justice. We deserve your judgment for our many sins. But we confess them to you now and we embrace your mercy. We embrace your kindness. We embrace your righteousness. Would you, by your spirit, move into our hearts, drive out darkness, cause us to hate evil and cause us to love truth and love your word and love each other. Would you do this for our glory and the good of the watching city? The good of the people out there that need to see a city set on a hill. They need to see, they need to taste salt and taste something different. Drive out our worldliness, Lord. Make us holy unto you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.